Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, church family. My name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, if you have a Bible, please open it to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And if I can just say one quick thing about Ed... Um, when Ed first came here, he asked the elders to pray with him, and it was a really amazing moment because y- you just see real faith. A-, a man knowing that he was staring at his own mortality, and he just wanted to finish well. And so it was faith building, and uh, we sh- I shook up community groups when I came here, and it's always dangerous shaking things up because you get pushback, uh, but it was totally worth it if it got Ed into a community group, which it was awesome just to hear the stories of people walking with Ed well. So I would do it all again. I don't even care if you didn't like how we do community groups. Uh, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue looking at this book of Ephesians this morning. Uh, we're going to read uh, 11 through 22. So we're going to try this. We're, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to say at the end when we're done reading it, this is the word of the Lord. And just as is, was the practice of the early church, you'll respond, thanks be to God. All right, so I'm going to read we're going to do that if I remember. Hopefully I remember. If I forget, somebody look at me. But we're going to do that, and then I'm going to pray. So let's jump in. To, this is God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and Others, strangers to the covenants of promise, not having any hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being knitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, uh, as we're reminded on this cold morning, seasons change. Lots of life happens. Lord, uh, we're just reminded uh, by you taking your servant Ed home that we all are going to die. Life is just a short and fragile gift. So teach us to number our days, Lord. Father, I pray as we look to your word that we would not uh, be shaped by the culture around us, but that we really would burn out bright as the people of God 
who are being shaped and built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus being our cornerstone. God, I pray your word would shape this church. Help us to repent in areas where culture is shaping us. Help us to repent in areas where our minds are being formed by things other than your word. God, I pray your spirit would show up and help us to see your word this morning. God, we look forward to the day when all the nations, all peoples are gathered around your throne singing your praise. So Father, we pray, we echo Jesus' prayer, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. It's hard to keep the peace when you're on drugs. Turns out it's hard to be a peacekeeper when you're on drugs. That's what the Peace Corps is learning. Uh, So the Peace Corps, in the past three years, they've had to send home 152 of their members from various countries where they were serving because they went there and then got involved with drugs, and uh, the Peace Corps has zero tolerance for that. So I just want you to just think about what's happening for one second here. You have great motives, great reasons. You want to go overseas and serve for the cause of peace. And so you, you do drugs while you're there. Think about who sells drugs. Drug dealers. Drug dealers are not notoriously peaceful people. So you, with great motives, came to a place and actually end up supporting something that serves against what you're trying to do. You're supporting a structure and a system that hurts the communities you're trying to serve. It actually was so bad, in one instance, uh, one of the Peace Corps members was arrested in the country they were serving, and they were sentenced for up to six months for drug trafficking. This is a problem. And and we we look at things like this, and we're like, how does that happen? How does someone with good motives, look, I, like, you can't become a millionaire joining the Peace Corps, okay? Like, someone, I, we tru- I truly believe they had good motives, they wanted to serve, they headed overseas, but yet they end up supporting something that works against their core identity, who they are and what they wanted to do. How does that happen? Well, it happens because we fail to see things in light of the big picture, They're not seeing their actions and how it affects things in the big picture. They're just looking at, hey, I wanted drugs. I wanted to have a good time. And really, they didn't realize what they were doing was working against what they were trying to do. And that's what Paul is trying to help us see today. He's trying to help you see the church in God's big picture plan of salvation. What is it that we do? Who are we? How do we do it? What's this all about? So the battle for our identity continues. Last week, Paul wanted us to really see how the curse that was found in Eden, the the, the sin, when when Adam and Eve sinned, it kicked open the door for death and brokenness. And Jesus reversed that curse. We were dead in trespasses and sin. He made us alive, seated us up with Christ. The curse of Eden is, is broken. But Eden is actually not the bottom of the downward spiral. Eden actually just, just got the problem started. See, if you, if you keep reading through Genesis, you start to find out that the brokenness that sin happened, it got worse as it spread to various people. So Adam and Eve, their kids, kill each other. Then one of their kids starts a city that's built on bragging about injustice and polygamy and violence. And then these cities grow and grow and grow. And the problem just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so then we finally get to a place where all the nations gather together to rebel against God. They build this tower called the Tower of Babel, and they all gather there to rebel against God. 
And God in his mercy knows that won't end well for people. So he confuses their language and they scatter. Now, I I just want to be clear for a second. Uh, We have these divisions among people, and that's the result of sin. But I want you to pay attention. I do not want to be misunderstood here. Uh, There was diversity before Babel. Genesis 10, all the nations gathered. Diversity is part of God's rich tapestry. When God makes flowers, he doesn't just make one flower and it's one color, it's standard. God is a God who loves beauty and diversity. So there was diversity before Babel. But now after Babel, there's diversity and there's a fracture. So there was one race, the human race, and it can't even get along. It's fractured and broken. And so now what Paul wants to help you see is how the church reverses the damage done at Babel. The church is all about reversing Babel. What does that mean? How does he do that? Well, it's in this amazing passage, Paul, it's basically Paul's senior thesis on peace. And we get this amazing statement. It all hangs. This is all supported. He himself is our peace. Paul wants to see how the, 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 the bottom of the barrel, how sin takes you down this downward spiral, and even there, Jesus fixes the problem and reverses the curse of sin. See, last week was all about how we get reconciled back to God. We've rebelled against God. We got kicked out of the garden. The gospel, though, isn't just about reconciling us back to God. It's also about reconciling us back to one another. God's creation broke with sin. And Jesus is saying, I can fix it all. Ephesians 1.10, he says he's going to reconcile all things to himself. And now we're going all the way down to the bottom of the barrel to see how Jesus does that. And how do we go from this tumultuous relationship, how do we go from turmoil, the turmoil of Babel, where people are divided, not getting along, to peace? The cross. This is the only passage, this is the only time in the book of Ephesians where Paul uses that word, the cross. This is the only time he mentions it. And he talks about how the cross brings peace. Real peace. Not absence of conflict. That's not the Bible's understanding of peace. Absence of conflict is is not peace. Peace is wholeness. Creation is fractured. How does Jesus really bring wholeness? Paul wants you to see that Jesus reverses the curse of Babel and he he invites us to participate in curse reversing. And so there's just two points today. This is what Paul just wants you to see. He wants you to first trust the cross as your only hope for peace. Trust the cross as your only hope for peace. And then as we're people who trust the cross, we're going to highlight the presence of God by being a peacemaker. We're going to highlight the presence of God by being peacemakers. So how do we get from fractured people to peace? Well, look, look with me here uh, at verses 14 and following. Let's read that again so we get an understanding of how exactly it is that Jesus brings peace through his cross. Listen to this. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so by making peace, and that he might reconcile both of us to God in one body through the cross, thereby making hostility. 
And he came and he preached uh, peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now Paul's describing something that may seem really foreign to us. Verses 11 through 13, he's talking about this hostility between Jews and Gentiles. I think for a lot of us, we read that, and most people in this room are Gentiles. We're all goys. Um, and so we're like, wait, I, what's this problem? Like, is Paul talking about anti-Semitism? Like, what, what's he talking about here? What's going on? Well, you see, think the book of Jonah. Uh, in the book of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet who was going around to Israel, and he was preaching, and then God calls him and tells him to go to Nineveh. And you know the story. He's like, no thanks, goes the opposite way. You have to understand why he did that. So Jonah was preaching around the 750s, and he was a good prophet. Uh, he knew that come th- in a few years, God was going to raise up the nation of Assyria to punish Israel for their sin. Okay, And so he's saying, hey, repent, Israel, repent. This is what's going to happen. And then in the middle of that, God calls him and says, actually, go to Nineveh. Nineveh was one of the biggest cities in Assyria. Think about what God asked him for a second. He says, hey, go to the people who are going to, they're going to crush you. They're going to punish you. Go preach grace to them. Why does he run the other way? He cares about Israel. He's like, uh, wait, if they, I, if I preach grace, they're definitely going to repent. He says that at the end. I knew, I knew if I preached grace, these people were going to repent. And so he runs the other way. Why? Because he's concerned for Israel. See, what we're starting to see is what had happened. The law was given and the people of God um, had made this subtle shift. The law in the hands of sinful people, they were like, hey, this is what it's about. We're law keepers, they're not. It's us and them. We're righteous, they're not righteous. And if they want to be righteous, they just need to become like us. And it's this subtle shift. And so how do we go, think about it, and it didn't get any better. Think about Jesus' ministry. The woman from Capernaum, he received some flack for that. Uh, the good Samaritan. Uh, the, these Levites and priests were like, whoa, no way. And then a Samaritan came and helped, and the the people hearing this were outraged. There was this tension. This is the most turmoil racial tension in Paul's day, and he addresses it head on. He says, here's how the gospel brings peace, where peace seems to be impossible. How does the gospel bring peace? Look with me uh, in verses 14 and in verse 16. Again, listen to these words. This is what he says. He himself is our peace. He made us both one and has broken down right here. This is so important. In his flesh. Skip ahead to 16. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus sees the hostility, the division, the dividing wall that's between Jew and Gentile, and he takes that hostility on himself and goes to the cross and dies. What's, that, what's he doing? He's, when he dies and hostility is with him, the hostility dies. That's like, this is kind of morbid, but I couldn't think of anything better. That's like you saying, oh man, I'm going to send my friend in England, I'm going to send them my favorite t-shirt. And so you put it in a box, and you put that box on a plane, and you watch that plane go off, and then it crashes in the ocean, just explodes. Your t-shirt's not making it to England. Everyone else got out, they survived. Sorry, that's the only thing I can think of. That's exactly how the cross brings peace. Jesus took the hostility on himself and died with it. Thereby, the hostility is dead. And and listen to what it says about it. He himself is our peace. Jesus is not peaceful. Jesus equals peace. And doesn't just equal peace, he equals our peace. 
And so there's this tension between Jew and Gentile, something that's very foreign to us, but Jesus can, can solve that peace problem by taking hostility upon himself. Uh, in, in rhetoric, there's this thing called amerism. So the next time you're at like a fancy NPR cocktail party, you can be like, oh yes, this merism. Uh, it, it, it means when you take two extremes, you're talking about everything. So basically, if I lose something, I say, oh man, I was searched high and low for my keys. High is the opposite of low. And so if I'm talking about two opposites, I'm talking about everything in between. Jew and Gentile, they're opposites. And so they're talking about everything in between. Jesus isn't just taking on sin he, that between you and God, your personal relationship with God. He's taking on the sin that affects and breaks everything. People's broken relationships. He's taking that on by taking it on himself and dying. That's the first way he takes on this hostility. The cross is our hope. There's a reason this is the only time Paul mentions it in this book. He's trying to highlight what happened. When Jesus died, hostility died with him. Hostility is yesterday's news. It's like, it's like having a great record collection, but only having an iPhone. It just doesn't work anymore. Like, you, you may have an awesome, you can't listen to it. It doesn't work anymore. That's what hostility is for the believer. Racial tension and racial hostility, we shouldn't have it. It's the old person. Here, and here's how he goes even further. He says this, he didn't just kill the hostility, he made one new man. That's so significant. That phrase, that word new doesn't just mean like, oh, my car broke down, so I got a new car. It's not saying like, I, I got a new thing that was like the old thing. It's like, my car broke down and I got a teleporter. Like, it's got it's something totally different. That's what happened. What, before the cross, there were, there were Jew, Gentile. And now after the cross, he makes one new person. This new humanity. The old humanity rebelled and just fractured and broke. So he says, I'll make a new humanity. And that's who we are. And, and like, to really understand this, um, we're going to, we got to go back to Acts. This is, listen to this. This is how um, Paul's referencing this passage again and again. Acts 2, the founding of the church. Listen to what he says. Now, when the day of Pentecost, this is Luke, had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That's really important. Remember that in a second. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Here's, what, here's what's happening here. That word, a mighty rushing wind, you're like, why is that significant? So when the church is founded, a wind comes. Okay. Well, that... There's a common word for wind, and it's pneuma. It's used all over the New Testament. That's not the word that's used here. The word is actually pane. Wow, thanks, Craig. That was super helpful. Now I know what you're talking about. But actually, the word pane is only used one other time in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Want to guess where? Genesis 2. God breathed into man the breath of life. Here's what he's saying. There, was one, there once was a man... Now with this church, there's a new man, new creation. This, this is new. So if you are, if anyone is in Christ, they are new creation. That's objectively true. That's new. Like unlike anything else before. So that hostility that used to define people's relationships, well, it doesn't fit you anymore. You're new. 
That's the old way of doing things. And if you're, if you're going to put that on, you're not going to be able to have it. Like, if you take a record, a vinyl, and just put it on your iPhone, it's just going to weigh down your phone. People are going to think it's odd. It just doesn't fit anymore. And that's what Jesus is saying about this hostility. Right now, currently, there is peace. And, and not just absence of conflict, but real, true, wholeness. Where there once was division, this dividing wall, this separating fence, Jesus tore it down when he died. Only the cross can do this. We, as a culture, we live in a really racialized society. Race gets talked about all the time. And there's no peace. There isn't peace right now. We may think there's peace. At best, there's absence of conflict. But for the church, for this new humanity, there really is peace. Because why? He himself is our peace for these two bodies. He took two people and made them one new person. So he's not just playing mediator between two fighting groups. Okay, sometimes I'm on your side. Well, sometimes I'm on your side now. He says he himself is our peace. He took the two and made them one, and they're part of his body, connected to him. That's real reconciliation. And, th- and that word is used here. He says it in verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body. How does he do that? The cross. This is something that's totally foreign to our culture. They don't understand. the cross. On the cross, something really did happen. Hostility really did die. And that's exactly what Paul wants to talk about. Not absence of conflict, but real, true wholeness. Well, what does that mean? Where do we go from there? Well, Paul wants you to see that this new creation, when you, put, when you reverse Babel, and leave a reversed Babel in Babylon, it starts to do some un-reversing itself. Jesus, Jesus, the reason why you don't just get saved and go right to heaven is because Jesus invites us to be instruments in his hand on the mission that he was on doing his work. He reversed the curse, and now he leaves us, and our very presence starts reversing the curse as well. This is what he's saying in verses 18 through 22. He's saying, look, you can highlight the presence of God by being a peacemaker. When we understand our identity as a body, who we are, that we are inherently peacemakers. Why? Because we worship a God who he himself is peace. And he was able to bring peace to the most tumultuous relationship. It's, there's, it, hostility is gone. One body. If we, if we worship that God, we ourselves become peacemakers. And when we are peacemakers in our context, we highlight the presence of God. Keep looking right here. It says this. Uh, verse 18. We're going to read that again. So through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members and household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit. Flip back with me to Acts 2, because Paul is just thinking about this left and right. So we talked about the wind. What's happening when the wind comes? Well, another odd thing happens. Divided tongues as of fire appear on people. What's the deal with that? What's up with this fire? Well, in the temple, uh, the temple, uh, God's presence was signified through fire. And so what he's saying now is this. The church is the new temple. 
The temple was the place where heaven and earth met, where God's presence came and dwelled with his people. And now the place where heaven and earth meet is the church. We are heaven on earth. What's, what he says in verse 22, we are God's presence here on earth. And, and what keeps happening? Oh, let's keep reading a little bit in Acts. Read with me in verse 8. How is it that we each hear, in, uh, each of us in his own language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia, I, don't, I never heard of that, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is the reversal of Babel. Babel is undone. Where there once was division, now Jesus is bringing all these nations together, united as a body. And that's, that's our identity. That's who we are. That's what the church is doing in the big picture. When people are reconciled to God, they join a body, and that body then is given the work of reconciliation to go out into the world, continuing that work. Recon- reconciling us to God and us to each other. The curse was devastating, but the victory of Jesus goes all the way to where the curse was. Jesus is saying this, look, by uniting people who didn't get along, I'm saying my victory is final. Like, this is a witness to demons, to angels, to the world who are watching that Jesus really won. There once was tension here, and the tension is gone. This is, and the fact that we're the temple the fact that we are where heaven meets earth. Heaven was lost. Paradise was lost. But the, the church is proof positive that paradise is not permanently lost. We are a roadmap to a way home. And think about the future. Think about what heaven, uh, Revelation uh, 7 9 or 9 7. I don't know. I'm kind of nervous. Nine, se- uh, 7 9. Here's what it says. John, and I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with one loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When God created the world, he, told, he said, Fill the earth. And, and they couldn't. We rebelled. And now what he's saying is, I redeemed the whole world. The whole earth. People from every nation, tongue, and tribe are united. Where there once was division, there's now unity. And that glorifies God because he's saying, hey, sin is powerful. Sin is real. I'm more real. I'm more powerful. And, and look, look at how he does that too. Verse 18, he says this. He says this. He says, look, he might wreck, uh, he... For through him we both have access in, by one spirit to the Father. Think about that for a second. Like, who's a father? Someone that you go to for safety, for security. And that, now we have two people who are hostile looking to the same source of safety and security. There's unity there. Uh, look, look again what he says in verse 21. He says, that In whom the whole structure, this, this, this body, is knitted together interdependence. And he says in verse 18, look, he says this, we both have access to God. So there's this kind of like tension here. It's not like when you become a Christian, you stop being white. Like, it, you know, 
it's like he's both. There's a recognition that, hey, there's still diversity here, and that's what glorifies God. That there's diversity, but there's interdependence among that diversity. Only God can do that. This is proof positive that God's presence is here. This is, this is on earth as it is in heaven. So Paul is showing us how the gospel brings peace through the cross, and that's our only hope. He's showing us how our identity now is, is tied to that, how we need to be peacemakers. And can I just ask you a question? Why don't we have peace? We live in one of the most racialized societies on the face of the earth. Uh, we live in a context where, I mean, I can, I can feel it. Like, just talking about this subject, it boils up feelings in all of us. Why is that? This isn't our identity. Hostility is an old vinyl and we're an iPhone. So why haven't we been people of peace? Look, um, Christian Smith and Michael Emerson, they talk about how we live in a racial society. This is what they say. This is the society that we live in. A society wherein race matters profoundly for differences in life experience, life opportunities, and social relationships. And if you don't know who they are, you know who this guy is. Billy Graham once said this, I've often said that in my view, racism is the biggest social problem we face in the world today. And I believe it still is. He said that as late as 2006. Why don't we have peace? I think a lot of the reason that we don't have peace is because we've been drinking from a ladle of a soup mixed with enlightenment philosophy and the Bible. We look more like the culture than we do scripture in this area. And it's, it's, it's been happening for a really long, long time. I mean, I wish I could say that the church has been a helpful institution uh, in helping tear down uh, racism in our country. The truth is, we haven't. Uh, George Whitfield, one of my heroes. I love Whitfield. Uh, I mean, he got the gospel. He preached the gospel up and down the East Coast. Also brought slavery to Georgia. Slavery was illegal in the state of Georgia. Whitfield petitioned the state because he was building an orphanage and knew that he couldn't raise enough funds to build it without slavery. And so if you read some of the him petitioning the state of Georgia, it's devastating. Uh, we have to own that. We have to own that. We can't ignore that. It, it, maybe we don't have racism anymore, uh, but it's not just, it's not just, I'm not right, we have racism. Maybe we don't have slavery anymore. But you cannot deny uh, that this racism exists and the church's silence also aided in this problem. Uh, one of my heroes, uh, and, and many of your heroes as well, a man who is a popular preacher in the 20th century, he went around preaching. When we come to the South, uh, there would be segregated revivalists, revivals, black tents, white tents. And he would preach both of them. And when asked about it, someone said, hey, what are you doing? He said, look, look. I'm here to preach the gospel, and it's not my job to comment on local matters. Do you know what he did when he said that? He upheld an institution of segregation through his silence. Praise God, this man repented. It was Billy Graham. Praise God, he repented and actually went on to be a courageous voice for racial equality in our country. But inevitably, whenever we talk about this, we can throw up this white flag of, look, this is a political issue. 
This is not this is not a church issue. This is a political issue. And yeah, look, there are political implications of this. Like I can't deny that. But I just want us to be consistent. Okay? If you're going to say that, don't talk about abortion in the church. Look, my heart broke last month. I was devastated when the state of New York uh, on the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade cemented a law that would keep abortion legal. My heart broke. Devastating. That we as a country champion and applaud this wicked sin. Okay? And I, this is what I prayed. God, have mercy on us. What are we doing? Like we're killing our babies. What are we doing? Why did I pray that? I've never had an abortion. I've never paid for an abortion. I've actually walked with women who've had abortions and showered them with grace that God has for people who've stumbled. You know what? Because it would be wicked to say, look, that's not my problem. I'm not doing this. And that's been the church's attitude by and large. I'm not a racist. This isn't my problem. Look, because we, part of this is because we've been so separated from this problem. I want to show you some maps. This is from National Geographic. Blue is white people. Green is black people. That's Washington, D.C. This is not taken from uh, Jim Crow America. This is from the 2010 census. I just want to ask you a question. Does that look like peace? And it's not just a southern problem, okay? Like, Amy and I live in the south. We love the south. This is Boston. I grew up in the greater Boston area. We're separated. And this is Columbia. Does this look like peace? If I say, hey, me and my sister, we get along great. Well, how often do you see your sister? Oh, I don't ever see her. That's a peace that's absence of conflict, not wholeness. Like Michael Emerson and Christian Smith said, look, the social problem that we face, this racialized society, comes in differences in life experience, life opportunities, and social relationships. We're not just separated separated geographically. We're separated economically as well. The median net worth for African American or for white people in Boston, so that's debt minus assets, is two hundred and forty seven thousand five hundred dollars. Like, whoa, I'm moving to Boston, that's pretty great. Except if you're black. The median net worth for black Bostonians, eight dollars. When the Boston Globe originally printed that, they also had to print this. That was no typo. The median net worth of black Bostonians really is eight dollars. What do we do? What do we do when the church wants to stay silent? Look, I understand this is a hard teaching. Peacekeepers uh, noted that in the 90s when they started teaching about this, they started watching attendance go down at their gatherings. This is a hard teaching. We don't want to hear this because it confronts uh, our comfort. But look, if, if we are going to be the people of God, if we're going to see our place in the big picture, that he really is peace, and then we, Paul brings up the most tumultuous relationship of his day and says, look, here's peace. The two are now one. We need to look at the most tumultuous relationship in our day. It's been hundreds of years, and these two people groups have just not gotten along. There's not peace. And we cannot stay silent anymore on this. We can't view this through political lenses. I, when Jesus was approached by a guy and said, hey, who's my neighbor? What's underneath that question? Who is my neighbor? Do I really have to love everybody? Is, some of, is obedience to God optional? We need to care about this because God cares about this. 
So, is it all bad for the church? I'm here to report to you, it is not all bad for the church. Wesley, in his day, in a very unpopular stance, took a stance against slavery. And Mr. Spurgeon, blessed Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon said, I would no soon take communion with a murderer than I would a slaveholder. That's courage. And that courage cost him. People were burning his sermons. He was getting letters. And actually, a church, church, some church people in Alabama talked about sending people over to England to kill him. Why? Because when you start talking about this, this gets at our comfort level. Society is a way, and we don't want to change it. And look, I get this is complicated, okay? There are lots of facts out there. This is super complicated. We can talk about the facts, okay? Like There's a time and a place for that. But we, what we need to do is this. We need to ask the question and live in space, is this peace? Is this peace? Is this wholeness? Why aren't we stepping in that direction? The gospel brings peace, and so we, by our very identities, need to lean into that identity of peacemakers. We cannot be silent just for fear of upsetting social orders. So where do we go from here? What do we do? Well, I think there's a couple things that we can do to help us really cultivate and live in this culture of peace. First one is we need to lead with empathy and courage. It's really not courageous to stay silent. The reason, it's cur- the reason courage is required is because you may lose something. But we need to lead with courage and empathy. Oftentimes, people aren't necessarily good at both. Some people are really good at empathy, and they're not good at courage. Some people are good at courage. They're just ready to knock some skulls together and straighten up, and all right, we did it. Nailed it. Thank you. But we need both. We need to understand that for many of us, this is so hard to see. Because from our perspective, so from my, my white neighborhood, there's no problem here. Everything's super, like, it's a peaceful place. We need to understand that not everyone has those experiences. And yeah, you can, you can berate people with facts, but we need to lead with empathy. We need to listen and listen well. What's a great way to develop empathy? Read authors of different ethnicities. And this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, uh, as many of you know, he was a, he was a pastor in Germany uh, during the rise of Hitler. We started reading. started reading book, works by Jews. And he started developing empathy. And it hit him one day. He's like, wait, Jesus was Jewish. I, I wonder what he would think about what's happening right now in Nazi Germany. And, and by developing empathy, that slowly started, and courage took over. And uh, you know the rest of the story with Bonhoeffer. But he was reading, all, hear different voices, listen to people. Like we, we so often read within our tribe, and we can just create a cul-de-sac of ideas that sound like us. Read outside your tribe. A great place to start, uh, if, especially if you're doing your quiet time, the Africa Bible Commentary. Rick Warren recommends it. It's amazing commentary of pastors in Africa. It's a great way to hear different voices. Develop, like, we're not the only people out there. Next, we need to beware of blind spots. Look, George Whitfield, super godly. Super godly guy. Knew the Bible better than anyone in this room. Super godly. You had this massive blind spot. Who are we to think we don't have blind spots? We need to beware of our blind spots. Uh, and how, what's the best way to be aware of your blind spots? Invite others in. 
Ask for help. And it might be painful. Look, repentance is so painful. Everybody likes, everybody likes hearing a prophetic word, right? Like, oh, yeah, like, go tell the, those people over there what's wrong. I don't like it when someone's like, hey, here's, look, here's a mirror, Craig. Here's what's wrong with you. Ugh, like, I'd rather not. It's painful. That's part of our role as peacemakers, though. We have to start with ourselves. Also, let's pray that God would raise up diverse leadership here at Compass. Uh, the church in Acts 6 uh, experienced this huge problem. The Greek widows and the Jewish widows were fighting because the Jewish widows were getting all the resources. Why were they getting all the resources? It wasn't because the people were like intentionally uh, blocking them off and being rude and mean to them. It's because they didn't have any leadership thinking in that way. Like, oh, we need to take care of everybody here. Right, and we need to pray that God would raise up leaders in our church who would help us think and empathize with people who aren't like us. It's the best way to serve that community, so pray for that. It's what happened in Acts chapter 6. And lastly, what we need to do uh, is be gracious. Uh, we live in a culture uh, that, as one podcaster said, people are involved in basically recreational outrage. Um, you see it in the news all over the place. It's, oh, this one celebrity said this. This person did that. We dug through someone's Twitter. Look at this. And you know what our culture doesn't understand? Grace. Redemption. Forgiveness. That you can change. You can grow. Uh, it, they don't get this. We can, go, we can lead with graciousness. Look, and I've got to be the first one to ask you. I'm sure I've offended every single person in this room today. Right, I, like, we can't stay silent. We have to say something. And when you say something, you're going to mess up. All right, like there, there's just no, especially with this topic. I'm going to say one thing, and you may have heard that sound, oh, that sounded like something else. Oh, yeah, he, he said this. We need to lead with graciousness. We're not trying to play a game where we're just trying to label everybody a racist. It's not what we're doing at all. We're trying to bring wholeness, peace, back to his creation. Why? Because it's his creation. He wants to redeem his creation. It's precious. It's important to him. So we need to do that. Is this peace? I'll close with this. It's super cold outside, and it's no secret, I hate the cold. I think everyone does too. I mean, people talk a lot about, oh, I love four seasons. Nobody loves this, okay? Like, there's no snow on the ground. No, you can't ski. You can't do anything. It's just freezing outside, all right? I don't think anybody loves this. But cold is actually quite dangerous, and it's dangerous to one group of people in particular, people with Alzheimer's. Uh, it's dangerous because the Alzheimer's Association says that 60% of people with Alzheimer's wander. So you can imagine, as it starts to get really cold, if you have Alzheimer's and you wander outside your house, you pose a real danger to yourself because you're out in the world and you have no idea what you're doing out in the world and how to get home. It's a cold world out there. And we cannot forget who we are. We are peacemakers because we have experienced the cross, that Jesus killed hostility, and he's brought peace to us. We can't be shaped by our culture. We are shaped by our culture. We need to keep constantly going back to Scripture. That's why I said built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We need to remind ourselves who we are, what we're doing in this world. And we need to lean into that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word 
And as imperfect as I am, I pray that the message of your word was what went forth today, not the opinions of Craig. God, we love you, and we pray that uh, you would help Compass Church to be on earth as it is in heaven. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.